1: Updates on the spreading consequences of SoloraGate, including Microsoft's disclosure that threat actors gained access to source code repositories. A hard-coded backdoor is found in Zizel firewalls and VPNs. Kawasaki Heavy Industries says parties unknown access sensitive corporate information. Slack has been having troubles today. Andrea Little-Limbago from Interos on democracies aligning against global techno-dictators. Our guest is Drew Daniels from Druva with a look at the true value of data. And a British court declines to extradite WikiLeaks' Julian Assange to the United States. From the CyberWire Studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Summary for Monday, January 4th, 2021. Microsoft last week updated its account of Solorigate, the large cyber espionage campaign generally attributed to Russia's SVR. Redmond says the threat actors gained access to several of the company's source code repositories. The intrusion is believed to have been limited to inspection of the code. Microsoft reports that it found no evidence that any code had been altered, that it's contained and remediated the infestations it found, and that the company's assume-breach approach to security limited the damage. CISA has directed all federal organizations to upgrade their SolarWinds Orion instances to the latest version. The agency had earlier told them to hold off on updating their software until it had an opportunity to assess the effectiveness and the effects of the upgrade. It's now done so, and it's determined that SolarWinds has fixed the vulnerabilities in Orion and that agencies should move to the new software promptly. The New York Times review of the Solorogate affair puts the tally of affected networks, both government and corporate, at upwards of 250. The campaign is thought to have succeeded in part because it was staged through servers in the U.S. at the time when NSA and U.S. Cyber Command were focused on election security and their own penetration of hostile infrastructure. The cyber espionage is unusually troubling because the persistence it established could amount to battle space preparation for future destructive attacks. Researchers at the Dutch firm iControl have found a hard coded admin backdoor on Zizel firewalls and VPN gateways. ZDNet reports that more than 100,000 users are affected. Zizel's security advisory says that patches are available for affected products in its ATP, USG, USG Flex, and VPN series. A fix for the NXC series is expected in April. Users are advised to apply the available patch. Zizel describes the backdoor as follows, quote, A hard-coded credential vulnerability was identified in the ZYFWP user account in some Zizel firewalls and AP controllers. The account was designed to deliver automatic firmware updates to connected access points through FTP. End quote. The downside of this is obvious, and the vulnerability is readily exploited by IoT botnets set up for password attack. So do patch. Vulnerable systems are readily accessible. Any prospective attackers apparently do not need any other prior access to them. Kawasaki Heavy Industries disclosed last week that its networks had been subjected to unauthorized access by external parties unknown. The Tokyo-headquartered industrial conglomerate says that sensitive corporate information was exposed, but that no personal data were at risk. Reports in the Japan Times suggest that the information compromised was related to defense programs, but beyond that, little is publicly known about the incident. The intrusions were first detected in June. The company says that it had completed remediation by early December. The first work week of the new year got off to an unpleasant start with respect to the widely used business collaboration tool Slack. Slack users began to experience outages around 10 o'clock this morning, and at 11.30, the platform declared that it was a general outage. Something's not quite right, was the understated notification posted to the company's status page. Shortly before noon, Slack amplified, writing... There are no changes to report as of yet. We're still all hands on deck and continuing to dig in on our side. We'll continue to share updates every 30 minutes until the incident has been downgraded. Around 12.30 Eastern Time, Slack said that users had begun to see an improvement in service. A system refresh is apparently having good effect, but the company remains cautious about declaring victory. In the U.K., the Westminster Magistrates Court has blocked extradition of WikiLeaks impresario Julian Assange to the U.S. TechCrunch reports that Judge Vanessa Bereitzer denied the U.S. request on the grounds that sending Mr. Assange to the U.S. would be sufficiently oppressive to drive him to suicide and that his intelligence and resourcefulness would make it unacceptably likely that he would be able to evade suicide prevention measures. The decision represents this as more of a judgment of the accused's psychological and emotional state than a finding of inordinate harshness in the U.S. justice system. Mr. Assange faces 17 counts of violating the U.S. Espionage Act and one count involving unauthorized access to a computer system. The U.S. has 14 days to appeal and has announced its intention of filing additional charges against Mr. Assange, The New York Times notes that the judge did not find bad faith in the U.S. extradition request, and the Washington Post says that Judge Bereitzer's rejection of claims that the charges amounted to a violation of free speech guarantees amounted to a partial win for the U.S., which show no disposition to abandon the case against Mr. Assange. Drew Daniels is CIO and CISO at data protection and security company Druva. They recently published the 2020 edition of their Value of Data report, and Drew Daniels joins us to discuss their findings. Drew, welcome to the CyberWire. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, Drew, I mean, let's start with some basic stuff here. Um, This is the, the inaugural year of your Value of Data report. What prompted the creation of it?
3: Well, I think there was a number of things that we looked at um, in this. Um, you know, when when we were thinking about this report, we knew that everybody was experiencing this pandemic and that uh, it was clear to us that they may not know where their data is or how it's being used. And I think that the other thing that we learned from this survey is that many companies struggle to know what is the critical data that they have.
1: Well, let's go through the report together. I mean, what were some of the, the key insights that caught your attention?
3: You know, uh, as, as a security professional who's been doing this for a long time, uh, there weren't a lot of things that really caught me off guard. Being what I have to do, you know, kind of being the, the paranoid slash uh, person that is looking at, kind of the risks out there uh, a lot of the things that I saw it was more encouraging to see that other people are starting to see those things um, for mm-hmm. example what we saw in the report uh, numerous respondents mentioned that in a lot of ways they don't know what their critical data is uh, they don't know where it resides a lot of them you know and and I certainly struggle with this as well as on the CIO side of my uh, my responsibilities is we went from having an office where we could have shared infrastructure and we can have, you know, meeting rooms where people get together and collaborate to having all of these kind of remote endpoints um, with one person in them uh, and kind of figuring out that collaboration and how we do data sharing and, uh, and how we gain access to the data, uh, how we protect that data. These were all things that, uh, you know, I was thinking about and, and the survey sort of uh, 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 shared that other people were thinking that as well.
1: Now, one of the things that uh, you mentioned in the report is this notion of data agility. Um, can you define for us, you know, what does that mean in this context and, and why is it important?
3: So from my perspective, um, and and I think that um, each of the respondents probably were had a color perspective that may be different. To me, um, you know, now that you have uh, kind of data portability, you have data everywhere, uh, you need to know how to get that data backed up um, so that you can protect it. Um, you know, one of the things that I always struggle with uh, as a security professional is, you know, the, just the, the amounts of data and, and, uh, and how it's uh, stored. You know, I'm sure uh, every respondent thought about this, and you probably do as well. I mean, what's all the data that you have on your laptop um, that you probably don't need anymore that you should probably delete? Uh, when I'm thinking about how I protect data, how do I how do I sort through and sift through all of that data? So, data agility to me um, is you know making sure that the right people have the right data in the right context, so that as that data shifts as it grows, as it changes, as it becomes more critical or more sensitive, I can maintain uh, a track on where that data is and how it's being used so that, um, should that data become um, at risk to being exposed, um, I can make and change things to protect that data, protect that, uh, that resource. Uh, and I think that's where the agility comes in.
1: Drew Daniels is CIO and CISO at uh, Druva. Drew, thanks so
3: much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you very much. It's been fun.
1: And joining me once again is Andrea Little-Limbago. She's the vice president of research and analysis at Interos. Uh, it's great to have you back. I wanted to touch today on what I'm sensing is some, um, I guess, some pushback from governments when it comes to uh, some of these big social networks, some of the big tech companies. I wanted to get your take on this. What are you tracking?
0: Yeah, I think that there definitely is. And that's, you know, on the one hand, you know, we've seen a tech lash starting to grow in the United States. And so that, that's pushing the governments. And that actually is occurring you know, in many democracies, given the widespread disinformation and, and various data-sharing scandals and so forth. And so governments are, democratic governments are starting to push back on that. And what they've really been doing, you know, for a while has been more piecemeal approaches, not just to, to big tech, but just to the, the broader range of insecurities through the internet and everything from cyber attacks to concerns over government access to data in certain countries and so forth. And so what we're seeing is that, you know, that as both the the social media or the social network companies on top of the techno dictators together have basically been a driving force in shaping the internet, the democratic governments are finally you know, getting their head out of the sand and, and trying to push back and help and you know, push forth some policies and regulations to rein that in a bit. And so it's going to be a balance and that's, we're really in the very nascent stages of that. And you know, one example of it is uh, United, United Kingdom earlier this year announced a, an initiative to do a ten democracy pack for five G networks. Hmm. And so, with that, what they're arguing is to have the basically a pack of ten democracies focus on trusted software and hardware within the broader five G networks. And by trusted, really, what that means are you know our companies that are national champions within democracies, uh, and then they have not had this sort or of the wide range. Uh, security concerns that we've seen elsewhere. And so that's just one example that we're seeing of of the democracies. Uh, Australia, Japan, and India are focusing on a supply chain alliance, which has a huge technology component to it as well. And so that's where we're really just starting to see some of these start to pick up. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing is, I really do think that COVID-19 has accelerated some of this. Mm. And so, which is, yeah. Some of these trends, were, you know, they were under the surface already and starting to emerge, but COVID-19 has accelerated. Just like has disrupted and upended every aspect of our life, it has done so as well in the realm of, of tech alliances among democracies as well.
1: You know, you, you use the term techno-dictators. Uh, that's new to me. How do you define that?
0: Yeah, and no, that's a good question. And, and there are a couple different terms, techno-dictators or digital authoritarians. And so it, it really is, is the use by generally authoritarian governments, but I will say that you know, some democracies are starting to borrow from their playbook, of trying to, to get complete control of information, both within their own national sovereign borders, but also using the, the internet through various means, cyber attacks, disinformation, censorship, uh, to also push forth their own incentives and, and their own narrative globally. And it's, you know, it's a wide variety of tools, but it's really how how the dictator's have leveraged technology and largely the internet but also uh, you moving into the areas of, you know, of AI and how they've been using bots uh, over time so it's really across the realm of, of all these emerging technologies how authoritarians have really jumped on those technologies to use them for their own purposes and you know like all technologies you know, they can be used for good or bad and the you know the techno dictators I would argue are the ones that are using them to suppress civil liberties inherent freedoms uh, controlling people uh, with or controlling information access within their borders and externally, and then using it even as a, you know, as a tool of foreign policy. And that's where we're seeing those, you know, those kind of countries are starting to have more and more power. And, and you know towards the end of 2019, autocracies had, had a greater share of GDP than democracies for the first time since 1900. And so there's, you know, there's an economic clout behind it as well. And that's what I think makes it even more so... Um, disconcerting and worrisome and it's why it's nice to see finally that democracies are starting to move away from some piecemeal approaches that aren't working and realizing again the the benefits of collective security
1: hmm. and how is that playing out are, are there some specific ways that, that you're seeing the, the democracies <laughs> teaming up here
0: yeah and, it, and I would say you know, again, it's very very nascent it's you know the UK initiative some of the the Asian supply chain initiative, Uh, You know, in the United States, the Department of State has has introduced the Clean Tech Initiative. Um, That's received both um, some—has some proponents and opponents. Mm. You know, so it's really becoming a broad discussion. And, you know, we'll see. I I wish I could say there was this really great initiative that just came out, but we're not there yet. (laughs) And that's—but we're (laughs) starting—at least the discussions that haven't been held are starting to be held. And especially at a time when, you know, democracy has been on the decline for over a decade. Uh, You know, it's nice to see— you know, it's it's one area. It's it's a little bit of hope that they're starting to have some of these discussions, and so we'll we'll see what happens over the next few years. Um, you know, and I think that if you know, depending on you know U.S. and E.U. relations, but also seeing some partnerships with India and Australia, South Korea, Australia, there is a, a growing sense and awareness of of the growing power of you know especially China, um, but also you know, the of the Chinese model that's spreading. Um, but, you know, the, the, the democracies are starting to realize that there needs to be some form of, of government involvement to determine and help shape the future of, of the Internet and of, of, you know, basically, you know, of societies at this point, of the digital revolution. And whether you want to be in the in the mold of techno-dictators, whereas the government's having control, where the national champions basically, you know, act at the whims of the government and the data can be accessed there, or on this emerging, you know, Techno de- uh, Democracies and some of these tech alliances that are starting to be discussed that are focused much more so on trusted networks on the security and privacy that 's going to be foundational and is foundational uh, to human rights, civil liberties, and democracy and so those are the the different models being discussed and it 's you know, it's, it's well past time that the democracies are starting to step in and, and we 'll see what happens with that but um, it 's nice to see finally some pushback because it has been quite some time where this other model is basically gone uh, without any kind of counterweight.
1: All right. Well, Andrea Little thanks for joining us.
0: Great. Thank you so much.
1: And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. It can bring home the bacon and fry it up in a pan. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker too. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast where I contribute to a regular segment called Security, Ha! I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed and check out the Recorded Future podcast which I also host. The subject there is threat intelligence and every week we talk to interesting people about timely cybersecurity topics. That's at recordedfuture.com slash podcast. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Haru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Cyril Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. We'll see you back here tomorrow.